Almost no one understands suicide very well. Almost no one. Almost no one. Now, some of you might say, but Dr. Peter, I have been really down and out. I have been really suicidal. I've been there. I've lived it. Hey, I'm not going to argue with you about having been suicidal. But having intense feelings, having almost irresistible impulses towards suicide, having constant suicidal thoughts, that does not mean that you understand suicide. Not at all. I don't think most people who have attempted suicide really understand their experience of suicidality. I don't think most therapists really understand suicide. Why? Why do I say that? Because we're really afraid to enter into what is behind suicide. We don't want to go there. We're terrified of what lurks underneath those suicidal thoughts. We have parts that do not want us to understand what's down there in the darkness, in the pain, in the anguish. Lauren Oliver, in her book Delirium, said, quote, Suicide, a sideways word, a word that people whisper and mutter and cough, a word that must be squeezed out behind cupped palms or murmured behind closed doors. It was only in dreams that I heard the word shouted, screamed, end quote. And I'll go further than that. It's not so much because we're afraid of what we'll find in another person, what we'll find in a friend or a relative or a colleague. It's because we're terrified that finding the darkness inside of others will wake up our own sleeping giants of darkness. The darkness inside us, the terror inside us, that's why we avoid, that's why we distract, that's why we skirt the edges of this topic. And Benjamin Franklin knew this. He wrote in the Poor Richard's Almanac, quote, Nine men in ten are would-be suicides. End quote. Nine men in ten have the potential for suicide. That's what that means. And Freud popularized this in 1920 in a book called The Pleasure Principle. There he discussed the death drive, the drive toward death and destruction, often expressed through behaviors such as aggression, repetition, compulsion, and self-destructiveness, including suicide. The death drive, that went by the name Thanatos. Thanatos, the Greek god who personified death. Now, Freud, he caught a lot of flack for this, both back then and now. Actually, the whole death drive thing is not widely accepted, but you know what? I think he was on to something. There is something we don't want to think about in others, that they have drives towards self-destruction. And you know what? That's something we don't want to admit in ourselves. But if we're really honest with ourselves in looking at suicide, we would realize with John Bradford that there but for the grace of God go I. We would give up our false presumptions about our own strength and our own natural resiliency and our own independence and our own autonomy. We would realize with Shakespeare's Lord Chancellor in Henry VIII, Quote, we are all men in our own natures frail and capable of our flesh. Few are angels, end quote. 
If we really were honest with ourselves and looking at suicide, we would understand Mahatma Gandhi when he said, quote, if I had no sense of humor, I would long ago have committed suicide, end quote. We would have a lot less judgment about the souls and the experience of those who killed themselves. Yes, the action of suicide is wrong. It's gravely wrong. And we'll discuss that in next week's episode. We're not minimizing the gravity of the act of killing oneself, but I'm talking here about the phenomenological experience of those on the brink of self-destruction and why they are there. And we would understand something if we were really honest with ourselves about the spiritual dimensions, the dark spiritual powers that are at work in suicide as well. Now, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think you really have a very accurate idea about suicide. Suicide is one of the most misunderstood of human actions. Why? Because again, we want to avoid the churning darkness, the despair, the hopelessness, the alienation, the trauma within us. We don't want to see it in others. Because we want to avoid the churning darkness, the despair, the hopelessness, the alienation, the trauma within us, because we want to avoid all of that, we don't want to see it in others. And if someone near to us is suicidal, we know, we know instinctively that he is tapping into his despair, his hopelessness, his alienation. We know that our suicidal friend is really in the grip of her trauma and her isolation and her excruciating pain. And our natural response is to flee, to get out of Dodge, to protect ourselves. We rationalize it. We say things, well, I'm not a professional. I'm not a counselor. I don't know what to do with all this intensity. Or maybe we stay in there. Maybe we force ourselves to stay in the relationship with our suicidal comrade, but we feel really inadequate. We don't want to go too deep. We don't want to screw it up. And in our timidity and fear, we actually are not very helpful. Okay. Okay. I'm going to grant that you don't really know what to do. And I get it that you're afraid, maybe terrified. Okay. This is a tough issue. Suicide is a tough issue and tough issues are what we specialize in here. Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for making it through the lead-in and not fleeing from this episode. I'm glad you and I are in this together, and it's going to be okay. By God's grace... Together, we can handle, we can work with, we can work through this topic of suicide. We'll do it together. I am clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski, and you are listening to the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, where we take on the toughest issues, the toughest topics, the ones others don't want to touch, and we go really deep with them. Why? Why do we do that? Well, it's not out of idle curiosity. It's not out of disordered interest. It's not out of some kind of psychological voyeurism. No, we go there in this podcast because we are working on ourselves. We're working on our own human formation. We're working on shoring up the natural foundation for our spiritual lives so that we can enter into loving union with God. That's why we do it. It's about removing the psychological barriers you have to a much deeper intimacy with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Blessed Virgin Mary our mother. Now, in the last episode, we looked at specific cases of suicide in sacred scripture. This is episode number 78. It's released on July 26th, 2021, and it's titled The Desperate Inner Experience of Suicidality. We are going to enter into the phenomenological world of the suicidal person. Why? 
Why do we want to do that? Why do that? There's two answers. The second answer for going into all this depth on suicide is so that you and I can love. It's so that you and I can love others who are struggling with this. And there are so many. There are so many more than meet the eye. Benjamin Franklin estimated 90% of men have this potential. Nine in 10 men are would-be suicides. And I think he's right. Even though the vast majority of those don't even know there's a struggle going on inside. I think Benjamin Franklin knew about the latent potential for suicide in most people. And Freud, the Thanatos, the death drives, Freud knew. For all his faults, for all his follies, Freud knew something about the depth of pain in people's souls. The pain that lives in the unconscious, the pain that we're separated from, the anguish that we're not in touch with. He knew something about that. It's locked away, but only for a time. Unnoticed, but only for a time. So that's the second answer. The second answer for going into all of this is so that we can learn to love, that we can carry out the two great commandments. And what's the first answer then, Dr. Peter, you ask me? What's the first answer? The first answer for why we go into all this stuff is so that we can be known and loved as we are. We need to accept others knowing us and we need to accept us knowing ourselves in as much of our entirety as we can. Why? Right? 1 John 4 verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We He first loved us. We need to let God love us. We need to let our lady, our mother in. We need to be, we need to allow others to also know us so that they can love us. And that's in our woundedness, in our suffering, in our shame, in our pain, in our fear, in our sadness, in our anguish, however the darkness is for us. Whatever that darkness of ours is, we need to be able to be there so that we can be loved through it and out of it. Isaiah 9.2 The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. To them that dwelt in the region of the shadow of death, light is risen. Now, that walking in darkness, that's not just in the external world. That's just not because the sun's on the other side of the world. That's the darkness within us. It's not just the darkness in our culture. It's not just the darkness in our society. It's not just the darkness of our times and a culture of death. It's the darkness within us. It's the darkness within us, within our internal worlds. So today, we're going to get into, in depth, in detail, all of this topic, all of the things that go behind, underneath, that lurk within this suicidality. Okay, and before we begin, some caveats here. This is a difficult topic. We deal with difficult topics here. If it's too much for you, if this starts to stir up stuff that's too much for you, we're not going to be doing any experiential exercises in this. This is going to be basically me just being with you, talking with you about how about how I see all this suicide stuff. 
right? But it can be really activating for some people's parts. It can be really triggering for some people. And I really want you to listen to yourself and see if this is okay, that this is okay with what's, you know, with what's happening inside you, if parts of you are okay with it. If you notice you're not staying in a window of tolerance, if you're moving into fight or flight, if you're dropping down into freeze, you know, numbing out, take a break, stop it. There's nothing that says you have to listen to this all in one fell swoop. All right, so with that, we're going to get into something of the phenomenological experience of the pain of those who consider suicide. And this is from William Styron from a book, Darkness Visible, a Memoir of Madness. He says, quote, The pain of severe depression is quite unimaginable to those who have not suffered it. And it kills in many instances because its anguish can no longer be borne. The prevention of many suicides will continue to be hindered until there is a general awareness of this pain. End quote. That's why I want you to know about this. Oliver Marcus Malloy in the book Bad Choices Make Good Stories said, quote, Nobody has ever killed themselves over a broken arm, but every day thousands of people kill themselves because of a broken heart. Why? Because emotional pain hurts much worse than physical pain, end quote. Kay Redfield Jameson in the book Night Falls Fast, Understanding Suicide, said, quote, when people are suicidal, their thinking is paralyzed. Their options appear spare or non-existent. Their mood is despairing and hopelessness permeates their entire mental domain. The future cannot be separated from the present and the present is painful beyond solace. This is my last experiment, wrote a young chemist in his suicide note. If there is any eternal torment worse than mine, I'll have to be shown. End quote. That was a real suicide note. That chemist felt so desperate that he was willing to run the risks of hell. He knew about hell. He mentioned it. He mentioned eternal torment. That's how desperate that young professional, that young chemist was. David Conroy, in the book Out of the Nightmare, Recovery from Depression and Suicidal Pain, says, quote, Suicidal pain includes the feeling that one has lost all capacity to affect emotional change. The agony is excruciating, and it looks as if it will never end. There is the feeling of having been beaten down for a very long time. There are feelings of agitation, emptiness, and incoherence. Snap out of it and get on with your life. Sounds like a demand to high jump 10 feet, end quote. That's how bad it is. That's how bad it is when people really are caught in the grips of that kind of suicidal thinking. And one more quote on this from Maurizio Pompili and Roberto Tattarelli. They said, suicide is best understood not so much as a movement toward death as it is a movement away from something. And that something is always the same intolerable emotion, unendurable pain, or unacceptable anguish, end quote. That is what I want you to understand about people who are experiencing intense suicidality. That right there, that they're not necessarily embracing death. It's certainly not for death's sake. It's an attempt to escape from the intolerable emotion, the unendurable pain, or the unacceptable anguish. That's what suicide is about. That's the focus. That's the good that the parts of the person are seeking. 
All right, so let's start thinking about this in terms of parts. Let's start thinking about this in terms of parts because that is so helpful. As many of you know, I am an internal family systems therapist. That's the theoretical modality that I use. It's the conceptualization that I use. And I think it's so helpful to think of suicide in terms of our parts. It becomes very difficult to really appreciate suicidality if we're imagining the person to have a homogenous, monolithic, consistent personality. It just doesn't seem to capture the intensity of the conflict inside, the turmoil inside, the agitation inside, to think of somebody as having just that monolithic, homogenous personality that's consistent over time. Well, let's go to another quote. This is again back to William Styron from Darkness Visible. He says, quote, a phenomenon that a number of people have noted while in deep depression is the sense of being accompanied by a second self, a wraith-like observer who, not sharing the dementia of his double, is able to watch with dispassionate curiosity as his companion struggles against the oncoming disaster or decides to embrace it. There's a theatrical quality about all of this, and during the next several days, as I went about stolidly preparing for extinction, I couldn't shake off a sense of melodrama, a melodrama in which I, the victim-to-be of self-murder, was both the solitary actor and the lone member of the audience. End quote. What is this? What is this? You know what this is. This is parts. We're talking about parts here. One part observing another part. So let's get back to a definition of parts. What am I talking about when I'm talking about parts? Let's go over this again. This is part of that spiral learning. Parts are these separate, independently operating personalities within us, each with its own unique, prominent needs, its role in our lives, its emotions, its body sensations, its guiding beliefs and assumptions, its typical thoughts, its intentions, its desires, its impulses, and its interpersonal style, its worldview. Each part has its ways of coping. It has a role in your system. There's all kinds of things that go in to this little part. It's not just a transient emotional state. It's not just a mood. It's not just what sometimes are called ego states, but it's actually an ongoing, perduring part of you. Now, there are three basic roles that parts have in systems. Right, The first are the exiled parts, and these are the most sensitive of the parts. These parts have been exploited, rejected, or abandoned in, ex in external relationships. They suffered. These parts are the ones that have borne the brunt of the relational traumas. They've taken on and they hold the attachment injuries. They hold the painful experiences that have been isolated from conscious awareness to protect the person from being overwhelmed with the intensity of the emotion. These parts desperately want to be seen and known. They want to be safe and secure. They want to be comforted and soothed. They want to be cared for. They want to be loved. They want rescue. They want redemption. They want healing. And in the intensity of their needs, in the intensity of their emotional experience, they threaten to take over and destabilize the person's whole being. They threaten to take over the person's whole system. And that threatens to harm external relationships. That can lead to really terrible consequences. Now, these exiles, these parts... They carry the shame, they carry the dependency, the worthlessness, the fear, the terror, the grief, the loss, the loneliness, the neediness, the, the lack of meaning or purpose. They carry the sense of 
being unloved, unlovable, inadequate, abandoned, they're the ones that carry the anguish. They're the ones that carry the desperation. And the exile's role in suicide is in bringing the apparently intolerable pain to the front because they're trying to survive, because they want to be noticed, because they need to be released. They can flood the entire system and it can seem like everything is pain. Everything is anguish. So their role is to bring the intensity. They fuel the intensity. When they're successfully banished from conscious awareness, we don't feel the pain. We don't feel it in conscious awareness. And we think it's not there. But we are wrong. Really, really wrong. Just because you don't feel something doesn't mean it's not there. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean it's not there. And other parts, the protector parts, have developed incredible defensive mechanisms to banish that experience outside of conscious awareness. So we're fragmented. We're fractured. We're not integrated. And so this pain lasts sometimes years, often decades, sometimes 50 years, sometimes a whole lifetime without ever being resolved on this side of the eschaton. That's what the exiles bring. They bring that intensity. I love this quote from Rainer Maria Rilke. Wrote it to a friend and a protege, encouraging that friend to make peace with his, quote, inner demons, end quote. Now, I don't believe these are actually demons. These are just parts. But what did Rainer Maria Rilke say? It was this, quote, perhaps everything terrifying is deep down a helpless thing that needs our help, end quote. I think that is so often true. These are parts of us that are struggling. These are parts of us that are overwhelmed. Another quote from Susanna Kaysen from the book Girl Interrupted, that's her 1993 memoir of being in a mental hospital for 18 months back in the late 1960s. Susanna Kaysen, she said this, quote, Actually, it was only a part of myself I wanted to kill, the part that wanted to kill herself that dragged me into the suicide debate and made every window, kitchen implement, and subway station a rehearsal for tragedy. You can start seeing how this is parts, right? She says, Susanna says, it was a part of me, right? So the role of the exiles is to hold the intensity, and when they flood us with it, when they bring it, and there's no titration, there's no regulation of that, it comes on full force like a tidal wave over us, the risk of suicide goes up. And we're going to continue to talk about that. But let's introduce the two types of parts that are protectors. Let's talk about managers first. These are the proactive protector parts. These managers work strategically. They work with forethought. They work with planning. They're working really hard to keep you in control of situations, to keep you in control of relationships, to minimize the likelihood of you being hurt. They work really hard to keep you safe. And they have a never again attitude towards those exiles. Never again am I going to be overwhelmed with that intensity of fear. Never again am I going to be overwhelmed with that sense of grief. Never again am I going to be overwhelmed with that sense of loss. Never again am I going to be overwhelmed with that anger. Never again. That's their attitude. 
They're very much about reducing, about reducing the risk of overwhelm. And they control, they strive, they plan, they caretake, they judge. They're very pessimistic. They're very self-critical. They can be very demanding. They're proactive. They're anticipating what's coming up. And they're going to make sure that things do not get out of hand. That's the role of the manager parts. The third are the firefighters. And these <laughs> and these firefighters, boy, when exiles break through and they threaten to take over the system, you got to understand, this is terrifying. The consequences of exiles taking over could be disastrous. So when those exiles are about to break out, the firefighters leap into action. It's an emergency situation, crisis, crisis, like a fire raging in the house. And the firefighters are focused on rescuing us from a terrible situation. So there's no concern for niceties. There's no concern for propriety. They're not going to knock on the door. They're going to break it down. There's none of this etiquette. There's no little details like that. They're going to take bold, drastic actions because they need to stifle, numb. They need to anesthetize us. They need to distract us from the intensity of the exiles' experience. They break down the door and they spray water over everything. They're trying to calm the raging flames and they are not worried about the portrait of your grandmother being safe. It's all fair game because of the crisis. There's no concern for the immediate consequences. And this leads to all kinds of addictions, alcohol use, binge eating, shopping, sleeping, dieting, excessive exercise, excessive working, self-harm, violence, dissociations, distractions, obsessions, compulsions, escapes into fantasy, raging, and also suicide. Serious suicidal impulses are often driven by firefighters. Why? Because they look at death as a way to make the pain of the exiles stop. Suicidal firefighters are filled with hopelessness. They don't know of another way to protect you. They don't know of anything else that will work. Suicide is a last resort. It's not a first line of defense. It's a last line of defense. And they have been beaten down. They have been beaten down, sometimes literally, always figuratively. So let's understand something about the desperation of these firefighter parts of ourselves. The poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he wrote this, quote, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility, end quote. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was probably talking about some external person, you know, my neighbor, my enemy across town. I think it's really helpful to look at those parts of us that we consider enemies within us. If we really understood their secret history, if we really understood why those parts of us did what they do, if we understood their assumptions, if we understood their worldviews, if we understood their experiences and how they construe those experiences, what they're doing with regard to suicide would make sense. But we have parts of us that don't want to understand. We have parts of us that don't want to enter into those parts experiential worlds because we're so threatened by it, right? So there's this tug of war, these battles that happen within us. Orson Scott Card in the book Ender Shadow wrote this. It's the dialogue in the book. Quote, in my view, suicide is not really a wish for life to end. Well, what is it then? It's the only way a powerless person can find to make everybody else look away from his shame. The wish is not to die, 
but to hide. End quote. Shame. If you want to sum up in one word what's at the root of so much suicidality, that's the word. Shame. And a ways back, I think it was from episodes 37 to 49, I did a whole 13-part series on shame. That, that is what is at the root of so much suicidality. And we're going to get into that more in just a little bit. Another quote, though, from David Levithan from Will Grayson, Will Grayson, that book. Quote, I am constantly torn between killing myself and killing everyone around me. End quote. That's how desperate things get. Now, one of the things about these parts that are locked into this conflict, because there are also parts of us that do not want to die. They're not exposed to the same things. They don't have the same experiences. They don't carry the same burdens. They don't understand what's going on because these parts are not integrated. There's fragmentation. There's fracture. There's not integration. Then this doesn't make sense to so much of us, right? And since we have difficulty making sense of our own experience, it's very difficult to communicate it to other people. That's why understanding this in terms of parts is so so important. The stakes are really high. It's not just our natural life and death. It's also our spiritual life and death. There can be such rapid shifts among parts as parts take over control and they get booted out. They blend, they get booted out by other parts. It's like the battles over the control panel in the movie Inside Out. This from the French revolutionary philosopher Voltaire Quote, the man who, in a fit of melancholy, kills himself today would have wished to live had he waited a week, end quote. And this from Marilyn Monroe, who died of an overdose of barbiturates in 1962 at the age of 36. It was ruled a probable suicide by the county coroner. This is what Marilyn Monroe had to say, quote, When you're young and healthy, you can plan on Monday to commit suicide, and by Wednesday, you're laughing again, end quote. And then finally, this little poem by Edward Gorey. The suicide, as she is falling, illuminated by the moon, regrets her act and finds appalling the thought that she will be dead so soon. These parts trade places. They get, they become king of the mountain and they become deposed as king so rapidly in so many people. And this leads to impulse-driven suicides. Let's talk a little bit about impulse-driven suicides. How do we define impulse-driven suicides? Well, there are a few studies that have looked at this, right? Impulse-driven suicides can be measured by there being no plan, no previous suicidal ideation. Or in other words, people were not thinking about this much at all before they attempted suicide, and it seems to have come out of the blue. Well, a lot of research 
on suicidality comes out of South Korea. And in 2015, there was a study published in Clinical Psychopharmacology and Neuroscience that indicated that 87% of suicide attempts studied in, in South Korea were impulsive. 87% of suicide attempts were impulsive. And the most common trigger was interpersonal conflict, some kind of attachment loss or feared attachment loss. And the most common psychiatric diagnosis was major depression. Many of these suicide attempts were very poorly planned. And that makes sense because they're being done by impulsive firefighters. Those are what are driving it, the impulsive firefighters. In a 2016 South Korean study in, published in Psychiatry Investigation, 48% of 269 suicide attempts brought to ERs were clearly impulsive, very sudden. And this replicates a 1997 study from Sweden in which 44% of suicide attempts were radically impulsive. Now, of course, this impulsive versus planned is on a continuum. So we see that in South Korea, about 87% were impulsive. And of those, uh, in, the, in the 40s, 42 to 48%, there was no premeditation at all. Very impulsive, very much driven by what we would think of as firefighter activity. So how do we approach this? Well, we're going to get into how to approach this in far more detail in the next, in the next podcast episode or two. But we always want to reassure firefighters, dangerous firefighters, that we're not trying to get rid of them. We want to treat all of our parts, including these dangerous parts, with respect and appreciation. We need to hold in mind that they're only trying to help. They have a good intention for us. They're trying to help, and they're using the only means that they know how. If dangerous firefighters think that there are alternatives that will work, they will generally try them. What drives them to such level of desperation is the despair, the hopelessness, the idea that there's nothing else that can be done. These firefighters need to experience hope. This from Dr. Carl Menninger, quote, hope is a necessity for normal life and a major weapon against the suicide impulse, end quote. It's critically important to present these firefighters with other options for safety for other options to have their needs met without relying on suicide. And we will get into how to work with them much more in the next couple of episodes. Well, let's talk about the manager's role in suicide. Remember, these managers are more proactive, right? They're the ones that are more organized. And managers still can be very intense. They can still experience a lot of pain, but they're not so reactive. The managers are the ones that plan suicides. Right. The managers are the ones that turn suicide over in their minds, that see suicide as a comforting option sometimes. This is from Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche, you know, the German philosopher, the cultural critic, the poet, the writer, the German. He wrote this, quote, The thought of suicide is a great consolation. By means of it, one can get through many a dark night, end quote. Managers are the ones that prepare the wills. Managers are the ones that write the notes. Managers are the ones that come up with a, a method for suicide in advance. Managers are the ones that write the date on the calendar. And here's how it starts to come together. That if there are repeated suicidal impulses from firefighters, and that seems to be a way to cope 
with the intensity of the emotion, those impulses can be taken up by the managers, right? And sometimes firefighters can take on a more managerial role. And so we start to see contemplation of suicide as a coping mechanism, not just in the heat of the moment, but more consistently. This from Sylvia Plath, the American poet and novelist. She was a short story writer as well. She attempted suicide several times by several means, and she succeeded at age 31 after experiencing major depression for most of her adult life. She wrote this. She wrote this in the 1960s. Quote, the thought that I might kill myself formed in my mind coolly as a tree or a flower, end quote. You see, there's, there's not the heat, there's not the desperation, there's not the reactivity of the firefighter there. That's manager planning right there. That is now being driven by managers. And this from Thomas Joyner in his book, Myths About Suicide, quote, there are people who fantasize about suicide and paradoxically these fantasies can be soothing because they usually involve either fantasizing about others' reactions to one's suicide or imagining how death would be a relief from life's travails. In both cases, an aspect of the fantasy is to exert control either over others' views or towards life's difficulties. The writer A. Alvarez stated, quote, There are people for whom the mere idea of suicide is enough. They can continue to function effectively and even happily provided they know they have their own specially chosen means of escape always ready, end quote. In a riveting 2008 memoir of bipolar disorder, Manic, Terry Cheney opened the book by stating, quote, people don't understand that when you're seriously depressed, suicidal ideation can be the only thing that keeps you alive. Just knowing there's an out, even if it's bloody, even if it's permanent, makes the pain bearable for one more day. This strategy appears to be effective for some people, but only for a while. Over long periods, fantasizing about death leaves people more depressed and then at higher risk and thus at higher risk for suicide as Eddie Selby, Mike M. Amestis and I, and again, this is Thomas Joyner referring to himself, recently showed in a study on violent daydreaming, a strategy geared towards increasing feelings of self-control through fantasizing about the effects of one's own suicide works momentarily, but ultimately backfires by undermining feelings of genuine self-control in the long run. End quote. Right, so what happens is that something that works in the short term brings some temporary relief because of the fantasies of control and because of the fantasies of escape hardens into something that ultimately backfires. It becomes a trap. It's sort of like drugs, right? They can lead to feelings of euphoria and that eventually doesn't happen anymore just leads to like a diminution of the pain and then it doesn't work for that either and leads to a downward spiral right one of the things that i want to emphasize one more time before we move on in this podcast is how much tension there is among parts over suicide the battles that go on inside about suicide and this is from Susanna casen again quote the debate was wearing me out once you've posed that question, it won't go away. I think many people kill themselves simply to stop the debate about whether they will or they won't. Anything I thought or did was immediately drawn into the debate. 
Made a stupid remark? Why not kill myself? Missed the bus? Better put an end to it all. Even the good got in there. I like that movie. Maybe I shouldn't kill myself. End quote. And then this from comedian Stephen Wright, who I used to think was really funny. When I was in college, I thought Stephen Wright was really funny. And as I've gotten older, he's become less funny. But he said this, quote, If a person with multiple personalities threatens suicide, is that considered a hostage situation? End quote. Yeah, Stephen Wright was known for the snarky one-liner. But you know what? It actually is a hostage situation. It actually is. And all of us have multiple personalities. All of us have parts, right? And so often there is a part that actually is suicidal, even if that part's not in conscious awareness. When it comes into conscious awareness, yeah, it can take other parts hostage, Stephen. It definitely can. All right, let's talk about reasons for suicide. Suicide is complex. Suicide is complex. There's a lot of things going on here. And this is what Steve Crisp has to say. Quote, suicide is complex. There's never a single reason why a person contemplates taking their own life. And there are no absolute indicators that a person could be in that state. End quote. Right. So we went through sort of the risk factors of for suicide. We talked about those in episode 76, right? We talked about mental illness. We talked about traumatic stress, substance use. We talked about loss or a fear of loss, including academic failures and being arrested. We talked about bullying and shaming and humiliation. We talked about financial problems and job loss and the loss of relationships, the loss of family and friends acceptance. We talked about loss of social status. We talked about hopelessness. We talked about chronic pain, medical illness. We talked about feeling like a burden to others, social isolation. We talked about prior suicide attempts being a risk factor. We talked about access to lethal means. We talked about knowing people that have committed suicide that, has ta- that have taken that route. And we've talked about lack of all access to behavioral health care, all kinds of things that can contribute. And then there are some illusory ones, right? Illusory, illusory reasons that people give for committing suicide. This was from Jay Asher's book, 13 Reasons Why. It was a young adult novel all about the 13 reasons why the protagonist killed herself. And she wrote, quote, a lot of you cared, comma, just not enough, end quote. That's one of the big myths. I didn't get loved enough by other people, right? That certainly felt really strongly by many people who go, go this route, but it's an illusion, You get a variation on this. Phoebe Stone in the book, The Boy on Cinnamon Street said, quote, some people are just not meant to be in this world. It's just too much for them, end quote. Another myth that's echoed in the song, the 1971 song, Vincent by Don McLean. Do you remember that song? Remember the lyrics? You took your life as lovers often do, but I could have told you, Vincent, this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you, end quote. Sort of the idea that somebody as wonderful, as beautiful as you had no place in the world. You were mismatched with the world, that kind of idea. All right, we're going to leave that behind and go to the deeper, more primary causes. Now we talked about shame. And what does shame result from? Shame 
results from primary unmet attachment needs, primary unmet integrity needs, comes from when those needs are not met and when they begin to believe that the, that the needs won't be met, right? There becomes despair, there becomes helplessness, becomes agitation, becomes anguish, and the belief that I am unlovable, right? So what are those attachment needs again? These go back to Brown and Elliot. We've talked about them a lot. Attachment needs, we'll run through them. A felt need of safety and protection, a deep sense of security felt in the bones. When a part is not feeling this, when it doesn't feel safe, when it doesn't feel protected, when it doesn't feel secure, the desperation starts to go up. Attachment need number two, feeling seen and known and heard and understood, that felt attunement. So many parts can be really isolated and we might not even know it. I know of so many people whose behavior suggests, and I don't know for sure, but whose behavior suggests that they are really struggling with parts that are isolated, that are alone, that are alienated, and they don't even know it. The conscious parts of them don't even know it. Attachment need number three, felt comfort and reassurance. Makes sense, right? If we have parts that have no comfort, that have no reassurance, that feel like they're strangers in a strange land, risk sets in. Number four, feeling valued, delighted, and cherished by others. Number five, felt support for the best self. Now, let me tell you something really interesting about what happens when attachment needs go unmet. When attachment needs go unmet, the burden of that is always carried by parts, and those parts are exiled. Those parts are banished from conscious awareness. Those parts often wind up alienated and alone within one's own system. Now, where do you think Satan, where do you think demons are going to look for a point of entry? Are they going to look for a point of entry with the parts that are, well, you know, feeling good, you know, feel competent? have a sense of being included, have a sense of running the system? Or do you think that those demons are going to look for a weak link, a vulnerable point? I have had people's parts tell me when I've gotten to know them that the reason that they interacted with the devil was because the devil was the only one that would talk to them. I'm just going to invite you to take that in. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it make sense that Satan and his minions who hate God and who hate you are going to try to connect with the parts of you that other parts of you have isolated, that other parts of you have alienated, that other parts of you don't even know exists? That's the real vulnerability. And you know, Satan likes to work in the darkness. That's where those parts are. They're in the darkness. So those attachment needs, it's important that we not just have a conscious sense of those being met, but that we be integrated and that those needs be met throughout all of our parts, throughout the whole of our being. Integrity needs. Let's talk about those. The need to exist 
You know, there are people who commit suicide because they have a deep sense of not existing. They don't want to exist if they don't exist. There's something incongruous about them existing when they feel so strongly that they don't exist. And why do they feel like they don't exist? They may have been treated as if they didn't. There's something going on with those exiles. And so in order to overcome the unbearable or the seemingly unbearable pain of non-existence, the choice from a firefighter could be to no longer exist. Another integrity need. My existence is separate from others. I exist in my own right as a separate person. Sometimes you see suicide as the only way to escape a really enmeshed relationship. It's the only way out of an abusive relationship. Third one. My identity is stable over time and across different situations. There's a continuity. This is really hard when your parts are all over the place, when there's blending and unblending and different parts taking over and king of the mountain going really full blast. It's really, really hard. Another integrity need. That's the one for integration, for there to be coherent interconnections inside, for there to be a coherence along among aspects of experience. Another one is to be active with agency to effectively function in the world. It's one of the things that brings on so much shame is when people feel like they can't even function anymore. I can't even function every anymore. I can't even function anymore. We also need to to know that we're morally good, that we're ontologically or essentially good and thus we have intrinsic value and worth apart from others opinions and so many parts don't believe that they don't believe that because they hold the badness so many parts believe that they don't deserve to live but they also can't handle that by themselves so they bring it they bring it they bring it with all that intensity they overwhelm Right? Firefighters come in. How do we handle this badness? How do we, how do we, how do we manage this? this is an impossible situation. People also have an integrity need to make sense of their experience in the world around me. And that's why this part stuff is so, so important. If you understand that it's only one part of you that's experiencing this, that makes it so much easier to hold on to that it's not the whole story, even if it feels like it is. People also need to have a mission and purpose in life. We need to be able to make good choices. Here's what Bob Collins said, quote, when a famous person dies by suicide, we remind people to pick up the phone and call a hotline. If he had only reached out for help because help was available. That's a frequent refrain as if people who suffer don't know that and the disease doesn't disable cognitive function. We need to do more than give out phone numbers, end quote. Totally agree with Bob Collins. We need to be doing so much more. We need to be doing little things and we need to be doing bigger things. And we're going to get into that in the next episode. But for now, I'm going to give you a phone number, right? If you're having suicidal thoughts or if you know of someone who is, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 for support and assistance from a trained counselor. 
If you're in immediate danger, if a loved one's in immediate danger, call 911. That's what I can give you today because I can't do everything in a single podcast, but we're going to do a lot more than that in the next one. I promise you that. I want you to think about the resilient Catholics community. That's the community that grew up around this podcast. If this type of thing really resonates with you, if you're really interested in getting to know your parts, if you understand what the stakes are, if you if it's really dawning on you what the stakes are, and you want to do this with other people, get on the wait list. We're going to reopen the community in December. It's not too soon to get on the wait list. Go to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC and register for the wait list. I send out uh, periodic emails to those on the wait list. Keep in touch that way. If you're struggling with this kind of thing, we've got a free video course, a Catholic's Guide to Choosing a Therapist to help answer any question you have about getting a therapist, about finding one, about paying for it. All the details that go into starting therapy, they're in that course. Catholic's Guide to choosing a therapist. It's at our website, soulsandhearts.com. That's part of our outreach. That's part of our, our overarching umbrella organization, Souls and Hearts. Check that out. Also, another community has just formed. This is from Dr. Jerry Crete. This is the Catholic journeyman community. So if you're a Catholic man serious about the faith and you're looking to renew your life through prayer and personal growth and through healing and you really want brotherhood, check out the Catholic journeyman community. It's also at soulsandhearts.com. Conversation hours, I want to remind you of those, Tuesdays, Thursdays, all through the month of August, 317-567-9594 from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm not going to be doing them July 27th and July 29th because I've got some guests and I'm not going to be free, but all through the month of August, 317-567-9594, call me. That's from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Finally, and most importantly, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for the other listeners. Pray for the members of the Resilient Catholics community. I am praying for you. We are in this together. These are serious topics. These are serious topics. This whole question of suicide is so critical, and you're going to see how deep the roots run, especially as we consider especially as we continue with this series over the next couple of episodes. With that, we'll bring it to a close, as we always do by invoking our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots, pray for us, St. John the Baptist, pray for us. (laughs) 